Today we come to the difficult or sensitive subject of ministry and money. It's a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It's a subject that a lot of people misunderstand. There are people who openly call for some reevaluation of the way that we deal with money and ministry, the way that we deal particularly with paying pastors. It's not uncommon to find some blog or some person on the internet openly questioning why, if we're going to pay anyone, why don't we pay everyone? If we're going to have someone who is standing to teach us and they receive a salary, why don't we pay the Sunday school teachers? Why don't we pay the helpers? Why don't we pay the workers? I mean, they all are serving God and they're all giving their time and they're all feeling some sense of wanting to glorify the, God, uh, glorify the Lord. Why? Why do we single out one or two or three people and have them receive payment? And so there are people who fundamentally think that it is wrong, or they might suggest maybe a little bit more nuanced that it is certainly more noble-minded for pastors and for preachers to preach without getting paid. Many of them had had some bad experience. They maybe have been involved with some personal example that they saw abuse, or maybe they've watched over the last 40 or 50 years as as uh, prosperity preachers and televangelists have been exposed for their lavish kind of living and their multiple mansions, not to mention their immoral lifestyles. Maybe they've just gotten wrapped up in some movement that seemed to be overly focused about money. Even this week, we saw on the news uh, the highlight of the Bishop Bling, whose $40 million residence brought a mild rebuke from the Pope. Too bad it wasn't greater. These kinds of stories, of course, make us sad, but they're not surprising. Scripture tells us that in our own day, there will arise false teachers who will be driven by a love, an ungodly love of money. On the other hand, we know that the Scripture tells us that true believers and sound-minded pastors will be free from the love of money. And so people hear these kinds of things and they sort of assume then that maybe the best scenario is just to have pastors and ministers and missionaries and preachers who carry out their ministry without receiving any kind of money. They, they su- suppose or assume that maybe that would be God's preference, that that's always the best case scenario, that ministers not only be free from the love of money, but maybe be free from any kind of income at all along with the tragic examples, along with the biblical warnings, some people even draw this conclusion by observing the fact that the Apostle Paul set a pattern of providing for his own needs by working a separate job while he preached, while he carried out the ministry, while he offered the Word of God free of charge. And it's true, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me at Acts chapter 18, we see the explicit statement by Luke. This is, this is exactly what Paul did as he came to Corinth. Acts 18, we read, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that is the emperor of the Caesar, 
had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So this is what the Apostle Paul did. He preached the gospel free of charge, and he worked with his own hands as a maker of tents, working with leather in a shop day after day in order to provide financially for his own needs so that he could continue to preach without taking any kind of financial support from the Corinthians. It's not the end of the story, however, because if you move on down to verse 5, what you find is uh, we're told that Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth, we suppose a few weeks or maybe a few months later. Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. And we piece that together with other parts of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And what we realize is they didn't just arrive with encouraging words. They arrived with financial support, financial gifts from other churches, particularly the Thessalonican church and the Philippian church. They arrived with this gift, and that's why we read in verse 5 of Acts chapter 18 that Paul, after they arrived, occupied himself with the Word of God. That's not to say he wasn't reading the Word of God or teaching the Word of God before that, but what that means is once they came with that financial gift, he was able to leave aside his other work, his tent-making work, and give himself completely 100% of his time to the ministry of the Word of God. And this was his pattern. He would occasionally go to places, and we know he did it in Corinth, we know he did it in Ephesus, and he would establish this tent-making profession, this tent-making work, in order to provide for his own needs until he could solicit support from other churches who would provide for his needs so that he didn't have to work, he would take his support from outside churches. It was, by the way, Paul's practice in tent-making that that causes us to coin the word today for all missionaries, pastors, ministers who provide for their own financial needs by working outside the church. Still, Paul, Paul worked as a tent maker only up to the point that he received financial support from other churches. People have wondered through the years why Paul did this. Why he did this, particularly in Corinth and Ephesus, we don't have indications that he did it anywhere else. Perhaps he did, but, but they wonder why. Why would he do this in, in these places? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of background, but we know from other documents that Corinthian society operated, much like societies in Asia today, with a fairly well-understood system of favors and kickbacks. That is to say, there was sort of an elaborate culture that pursued not only the association with the rich and famous and not only sort of your, your typical name dropping and uh, your, your elaborate titles that would be given to people, but also the exchanging of these fairly lavish gifts. And these gifts, which were given on the surface voluntarily, were given with all kinds of expectations that there would be in return for the gift some sort of favor or some sort of kindness or some sort of return benefit down the road. I'll never forget one of the more painful things in all my life was when I was in China and I was, 
I was friends with a, a man who helped teach me Chinese. We would exchange. I would teach him English. I would teach him Chinese. And along the way, as, we, as our friendship grew, he would give me little things. He would, there were small gifts, and I really didn't think much about them. And I would always receive them and thank him for them. And I sort of maybe just assumed that they were in exchange for me helping him with his English or something like that. And he, he did this over a series of months. And then maybe after about a year, he came to me and he said, hey, I'm getting married. I need $5,000. Would you give it to me? I thought, well, I mean, I would love to be able to give you that, but I don't have that kind of money. And if I did, I really couldn't afford to give you every penny that I had. Uh, so I'm, I'm really sorry. I wish that I could help you, but I can't. I've never seen a person change on a dime the way this man did. In fact, the next morning I woke up and my, my washer and dryer were gone. In the middle of the night, I, I assume it was him. I'm in, in the middle of the night, he just took my washer and dryer and I was out washing all my clothes by hand. He happened to be my cook. This was a job that was given to him by the school where I worked. And so I, I had gone from eating these fairly nice meals to eating rice porridge for the next few weeks. And to say that the relationship cooled would be an understatement. It was frozen, dead. And it's just so dramatic to me, this guy that uh, we were such good friends, it seemed we had built this relationship over time. But because there was this expectation, and there is this expectation in China, that as you give these gifts, they always are given with some expectation, some obligation, some return. And I didn't understand that, unfortunately. And because of that, I lost a good friend. Well, Paul did understand this. He understood the way Corinthian society worked. He understood what so many philosophers did, so many uh, public uh, orators did. When they came into town, philosophers would often find a benefactor. They would find a patron, and they would teach and hold their, their schools within the large homes of these benefactors, and they would receive they're living by the funds and by the kindness of these benefactors. And in exchange, they would show particular favors to these, these patrons of theirs. And not only that, they would even exclude some of the social rivals of these patrons from their lectures and from their lessons. There were always these favors that were expected. It was into this environment that Paul came into Corinth and he made the decision as he came that he would not take anyone's money to whom he was preaching. He didn't want any kind of hindrance, any kind of stumbling block, anything to stand in the way. He didn't want to have any sort of sense of obligation, any sort of even assumed promise that there would be any sort of special treatment that anyone might lay on him a burden that would in any way hinder his preaching. Matter of fact, this becomes the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 of a whole discussion of Paul's choice to forego what he says was his right for the sake of ministering to others, to forego his right to pastoral payment. Matter of fact, this is what he eventually says down in verse 11 and 12. You'll see in 1 Corinthians 9 If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we would reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, 
we have not made use of this right, but we have endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And you see, even down in verse 15, we have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. This is a whole discussion about Paul's personal right, his personal freedom to expect payment as a pastor, as a minister of the Word of God. And it really flows out of a discussion he had had um, extensively in chapter 8. You remember where he had talked to them about their own freedoms and their own rights, and he had challenged them to lay aside their right to eat certain kinds of foods, foods which particularly would have been served at ceremonies and at celebrations in the dining halls of temples. This was common in the day. They would have birthdays, they would have weddings, they would have have other holiday gatherings in these dining halls, and they would serve food, which previously that day had been set before an idol. Removed then from the idol, it would be taken, cooked, and served in the celebrations and the festivals. Many people considered it an honor to eat such food, but for the Christians, it was a stumbling block. For many of them who had been raised and reared in idol worship, that food somehow was still tainted. Paul challenged other Christians who realized it's just food. I mean, there's nothing, there's no sort of transaction that took place there. There's nothing, nothing happened to the food to make it anything that would be harmful to you. So just eat. You have the freedom in your conscience to do that. Paul would challenge them. Look, even though you have this freedom, for the sake of your weaker brothers, you should be willing to set aside those freedoms. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what he says at the end of chapter 8. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's really in light of all that that Paul launches into this discussion in chapter 9 about his own freedoms his own liberties, and his willingness to set them aside for the sake of the gospel. This is what he eventually says down in verse 4 of chapter 9. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? In other words, you want to speak about food. You want to speak about eating and drinking. Let me tell you about food in my life. I mean, I have a right to eat and drink. And in this particular scenario, he wasn't talking about food and drink just at a temple. He was talking about eating and drinking in general. He was talking about receiving money to be able to buy food. This was a right. This was a freedom. And yet one in which his case, he laid aside for their sake. He forewent his right to financial support so that he wouldn't put any hindrance in the way of the gospel. Now his main point is that his willingness to set aside his right. But he spends considerable time, in fact, from verse 1 all the way down through verse 14, he spends considerable time discussing and outlining the whole issue of wages for God's workers, of payment for God's pastors, of the right and the justification of compensation for those who are in ministry. And it becomes for us, the most comprehensive section in all of Scripture addressing this issue, the issue of why we pay pastors, why we pay certain people who are in the ministry. There are, of course, some pastors, some elders, even in this church and in other churches who, who 
who are unpaid. They, they're lay pastors. They get their living from other kinds of work. But there are some, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, who because of their particular dedication to the work of the Word and because of their labor in it, and sometimes we might even say because of their giftedness in it, who are entitled to support from the church, financial support. And so we need to take a few minutes this morning to look at this section to understand uh, clearly what God's will and God's design is, to clear up any kind of confusion about exactly what pleases the Lord, what He would have us to do regarding this issue of financial support for pastors. We're answering the basic question this morning. Should churches pay pastors? Simple enough. Paul establishes it pretty clearly here by five compelling comparisons. Five compelling comparisons justifying compensation for pastors. Justifying workers and wages for God's workers. I want to begin this morning just by reading the entirety of the section. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it, is it only Barnabas and I? who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Or is it oxen that God is concerned? Or is it for oxen for God is, that God is concerned? Does not he speak entirely for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Five Compelling comparisons that Paul gives us here on why every church should pay their pastor. The first one he outlines in the first six verses is simply apostolic example. Just what the other apostles did. And he begins with this, this transitional phrase, am I not free? Linking back to chapter 8 and the whole discussion of freedoms. And of course, with all of these questions in the first six verses, the implied answer is, of course, of yeah, uh, uh, yes. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And they would have recognized that. But just in case, he adds, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That was a fundamental requirement. That is a fundamental requirement for a pastor. 
If you were an apostle, if you want to claim to be an apostle even today, the basic requirement, the basic criteria that you must fulfill is that you must have seen physically the resurrected Christ. Of course, all the other apostles, the 12 or the 11 apostles saw that. And then the 12th who replaced Judas was also one who saw the resurrected Christ. This was the debate. This was the criteria in Acts chapter 1. Whenever they were looking for a replacement for Judas, they said we had to have someone who saw the resurrected Christ. Paul himself had that same experience on the road to Damascus. The Lord in his physical resurrected body appeared to Christ, not only then, but in subsequent times he appeared to Christ. And so Paul himself visibly saw the resurrected Christ. This was basic for being an apostle. And so Paul establishes two things in this first verse. First of all, that certainly he had this freedom. Every pastor does, as he'll go on to say. But not only that, he had authority. He had the unique authority of an apostle. These were men who were endowed with unique authority during the early days of the church. When the church had no New Testament scripture that it could appeal to, no written revelation that would guide them in their day-to-day operations, the Lord gave this special group of men this unique authority to lay a foundation for the church. This is what Ephesians 2.20 talks about. Lay the foundation for the early church, establish its principles, and so the Lord gave them a sort of universal authority, one which they could wield when necessary. And this is what Paul's implying to them. Look, not only did I have freedom, but I had authority as an apostle. I could have come in and I could have made certain demands of you. As a matter of fact, he says it very clearly to the Thessalonican church. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says, look, I, this is who I am. I could have made this demand. He says it to the Thessalonians and he implies it here to the Corinthians. This would have been legitimate for him to do. Not only that, not only was it his freedom, not only was it his apostolic credentials, but he even mentions his personal investment in them. He says at the end of verse 1, Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship. That, that word seal, speaking about a signet ring, it's a word for the ring that they would use to put on hot wax in order to imprint their personal their personal statement, their personal signature, their personal seal. So he says, look, this is one of the evidences. I have the external criteria. I saw the Lord. But more than that, I have, I have in your own hearts this confirmation. You either affirm that by the teaching of the word of God from me, that you personally were transformed, that you personally were changed, you personally grew, or you have the indictment to say that you didn't grow at all, which of course they wouldn't say. They had grown. They had been changed. As he says it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, we do not need, as some people, letters of commendation from you or to you. You yourselves are 
our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. He says, look, you, you're my validation. I mean, if there's ever any question in your heart that I am not only uh, a legitimate minister of God, but an apostle, your life is the validation of that. You are our letter, our confirmation. And in all of this, Paul is implying, look, I could have made demands. I could have made demands. I could have asked for financial support. I had every right to. Not only because you were benefiting from my ministry spiritually, not only because you were changed, you were saved, you were growing, you should have been eager to affirm the work of God that was going on. And as a matter of fact, they probably did affirm on a regular basis how much they were growing under Paul's teaching. They should have been eager, therefore, he's implying to show their support for his ministry. It's a shame. It's a travesty to come alongside some missionary or some brother and say, you know, we really love what you're doing, love what you're doing. We're, we're so blessed by what you're doing and then to do nothing in return. Now in verse 4, Paul begins to make the point very, very clear. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? As we said, that's directly flowing out of the whole discussion of eating in chapter 8, particularly that eating of food offered to idols. But here it refers to Paul's basic right to get his living expenses, to get his, his financial support from the church. And he asks in verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? You might be asking, where did that come from? I mean, he's talking about financial support. He's talking about eating and drinking. Now he's talking about marriage. Where's this discussion about a believing wife come along? Well, if you have any question about that, you just notice in verse 6, the contrast that Paul makes. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, everything that he says up to this point really is angling at this point, uh, at this At this theme, the contrast that he's making is between all the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, that is James and Jude, who were half brothers of Jesus Christ, or even Cephas, which is another name for Peter. And what he's saying is that these guys, as a regular practice in the church, received financial support from the churches to which they ministered. Not only that, not only enough for them to have their basic needs, eating and drinking, but even, he says, to take along a wife. That is to say, as they went out into their ministry and within the churches, the church would support them and also provide enough for them to bring along their wife during this time of ministry. This was the practice of the early church to support these ministers in their service, and even in their travel as they went to various places, covering their expenses and the travel for them and for their wives. Enough support, perhaps, even for their entire family, we assume. The apostles and churches at that time, of course, understood the critical nature 
of a wife's support and companionship for her husband, especially when he was doing itinerant ministry. When he, as Peter did on occasion, would venture outside of Jerusalem and would go into the various Gentile churches and minister among them, apparently it was the practice of the early church to also send their wives. But Paul says, Barnabas and I, we didn't do this. We didn't do this, not because we didn't have a right, not because we didn't have freedom, not because we didn't have the same status as these other guys. He had every right, he had every credential, but he voluntarily gave it up because he knew that within that situation, at Corinth and in that society, it could have become a hindering, a hindrance, a stumbling block. Not only that, he brings up another compelling comparison in verse 7, not just the apostolic example, but secular society. Secular society, he says, sort of even recognizes the basic justice of providing support for workers. And he does it the same way, just continuing to ask them questions whose answer should be obvious to them. He says here in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense. That is to say, soldiers don't go out during the day and fight their bloody battles and then come home and wipe off their their armor and then go out and work at night just in order to provide for their food and their clothing and and the needs of their family. No, when someone serves as a soldier, they don't do it at their own expense. That is to say, they are provided for food and clothing and arms and lodging and the basic needs of their family. And he says, secondly, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? That is to say, farmers don't typically just work their fields out of the goodness of their hearts. They expect some sort of payment for that. They don't farm for free and then go out and make their living some other way. They eat the fruit of their farming. And then thirdly, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Shepherds also don't do their work for free. That is to say they expect at least some of the milk from the flock for their payment. And really you could say that about any job. I mean, secular society just recognizes this. They understand that you don't ask someone to go out and do something for free. And you could... You could use any number of jobs, really. I mean, you could lay out any number of examples from from agricultural society or even our own society. Paul probably chooses these three because these are three of the secular jobs that he often uses as an analogy for ministry. He often talks about, for example, how a minister is like a soldier fighting against false doctrine and false teachers. Or he talks even back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, how you... Uh, You should look at your pastors as laborers in a field, working God's field and sowing God's seed. He sometimes talks about pastors or, or, or elders as shepherds tending the flock. But the basic message is the same, no matter what the job is. It's customary, it's rightful, it's expected. It's expected that if someone labors, they would receive some return. Why wouldn't it be true for God's workers as well? You say, well, that's the problem. See, the problem is we professionalize ministry. It's not the same. 
The problem is we're, we're out there copying the world. I mean, this is what the world does. And so we're not supposed to import that stuff into the church. The world is all concerned about, you know, salaries and, and uh, raises and, uh, you know, degrees and all that stuff. That's the problem. Well, Paul doesn't stop just with this secular comparison. He goes to even a third that sort of answers that, which is the Old Testament law. Because if the standard of society isn't reason enough for you to recognize this basic principle, God's word makes it clear, he says. Do we say these things, verse 8, on human authority? Are we just saying these things because that's what the world does? Are we just basically making a comparison with the world and importing that? The implied answer, of course, is no. Does not the law say the same Verse 9, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It's, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Of course not. Paul quotes out of the Old Testament law here, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. It's an interesting verse. And we're not going to take the time, but if you were to go back and read Deuteronomy 24 and 25, what you would find in those two chapters is a whole series of laws related to the proper care and compensation for a whole host of people. He talks about the beginning of chapter 24, the proper care for people who are going into war as soldiers. He talks about later on the proper care for people who are farmers. He even talks about the day laborers and the people who would be hired just during the harvesting season. And he talks about how they should get their proper wages. As a matter of fact, those who harvest and those who reap, he says, you should leave, uh, Moses says, you should leave the corners of the fields unharvested so that they could come back after they do their work and have almost a bonus by being able to glean from the corners of the fields. All of this stuff, talking about the proper care and the proper payment for these kinds of workers. In the middle of all this discussion about how to pay and how to compensate all these people, there's this one verse about oxen. Verse 4 of chapter 25, the oxen shouldn't be muzzled by its treading out the grain. They would tie up oxen to these large millstones and they would walk around in circles moving these millstones. And he's saying while they're treading out this grain, you shouldn't put a muzzle over their mouth while they're working up their hunger and somehow deny them the, the, the benefit of being able to bend down and take a bite or two from all of the grain that they are treading out. And so it was the conclusion of most Jewish scholars, most Jewish uh, rabbis of that day, that this verse has really not talking, is not really talking about oxen. It's really kind of a proverbial statement in the middle of these two chapters talking about supporting various workers. It's sort of a blanket way of saying, yeah, this is what you do for soldiers and for farmers and for reapers. And by the way, for anybody, for anybody, this is a basic principle from God's word that anyone who's laboring ought to have the benefit of some of the fruit of their labor. And this is exactly what Paul says. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And the answer, of course, is no. Verse 10, does he not speak entirely for our sake? And the answer is yes. This is exactly what this is about. This is exactly the principle that was laid out in God's word. Very straightforward 
application. In fact, Paul draws out the application in the rest of verse 10 when he talks about the plowman and the thresher, just lifting those directly out of the Old Testament. These are the ones that God is concerned about and much more. The plowman should plow in hope of benefiting from his plowing. The thresher, the same. Otherwise, they would lose their motivation. They would hesitate from their work. And so he spells out the point in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we would reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim, apparently there were others that this church had made payment to or had given financial support to. He says, look, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. This is what Paul's saying. Look, we, we know we had this right. And he's implying through all, all of this, every minister has this right. But he says, we know in this particular situation, it would have put an obstacle in the way. I have a good friend, the pastor, who says that sometime this past year, he had a wealthy, very, very wealthy guy attending his church. And this guy took him to lunch one day and said, hey, my wife and I, we just love being in your church, love you and your family so much. And and we want to do just something really, really gracious and nice for you. We'd love to just give you guys a car. Can we buy you a car? And the pastor said, well, that's very kind of you. We're very certainly very grateful for your love and affection, but we couldn't do that. We can't take that. Guy was taken aback. I mean, he'd never had anyone really turn away his gifts before. And the pastor said, we can't take that because if I were to take that from you, I couldn't speak into your life anymore. I couldn't rebuke you. I couldn't say the things that needed to be said. There would be some sort of sense of obligation. And this is what Paul had. This is the heart that Paul had. He didn't want to do something that would somehow oblige him or somehow put some hindrance in the way of him speaking into their life. He understood that it's right and just and it's true and it's according to God's word that, that a church would want to pay their pastor. But in this particular situation, he knew the culture. He knew the society. And this is exactly why even today when we send out missionaries and they're going into new fields particularly, we don't have them take support from the people that they're ministering to. We send them money from where we are now so that they can go in and they can freely offer their ministry and the teaching of the Word of God to these peoples without any sort of, without any sort of claim of a duplicitous motives or any sort of accusation that they're just peddling some message for the sake of personal gain. Paul knew, he knew the tendency within this society. If he gave them some angle from which they could claim a sense of entitlement, some immunity from confrontation, some call for special treatment or favor, and he didn't want any kind of hindrance like that. So he says, we, we didn't take this. But not because we had no right. As a matter of fact, he goes on to just reiterate this in verse 13 with another comparison, this time to other religious workers. And he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings? Now, they would have known this even though they weren't a part of the Jewish temple system. These were Gentiles, they had never lived in Jerusalem. But they had their own temples. 
And even in their temples, even in their pagan temples, the priests would regularly take some sort of portion from the sacrifices for his own benefit. And this was certainly written into God's law. When you took a sacrifice to the temple, they would burn a portion of it on the altar. The fat of the animal would be burnt and it would go up like a fragrant aroma before the Lord. But there were designated portions of that sacrifice, which were, were to be given, whether it was meat or grain or wine, it was to be given to the priest for the support of his family. And this was written into God's law. And he, Paul says, don't you know this? This is, regular, this is a regular course for all kinds of religious workers. This isn't anything unique to the church. People just understand that if you have someone who, who dedicates themselves to the work that was necessary for these kinds of duties must take their living from their service in the temple. One final compelling reason that Paul has to highlight the right of compensation for pastors is really probably the most important the Lord's command. He says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, he doesn't spell it out for us here. He doesn't even really directly quote the Lord. He just says the Lord commanded this. But we know where the Lord said it. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is also dealing with the issue of compensation for pastors. And he says that those who work particularly hard at preaching and teaching are worthy of what he says, double honor. And we don't need to get into a lot of detail. The word honor is used throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to speak about the financial support of widows, the financial support of other people in the church. So when he says double honor, what he's talking about is adequate and generous support. Those who work hard at preaching and teaching, he says, are worthy of double honor for he says in verse 18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. The same scripture he quotes in 1 Corinthians 9. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now that's a direct quote out of Luke 10, verse 7. Which is interesting because it tells us that by, by this period of time, by the time that 1 Corinthians was written, by the time that Timothy was written, there was apparently at least some established tradition, if not some written down record of what the Lord said, and it was considered Scripture. Probably a copy of Luke's Gospel itself. Already at this point, 54 A.D. So here he affirms that the Lord had commanded this, we ought to obey it. This was particularly when the Lord had sent out the 70, you remember, the 70 followers, the disciples of his, and he sent them out into the villages around Capernaum to preach the gospel. And he told them specifically, don't take anything for your, don't take any bag, don't take any kind of, uh, of uh, uh, food or things like that, because wherever you go, the people you're ministering to ought to support you. And he, he justifies that by saying the laborer is worthy of his wages. As a matter of fact, this is exactly how our Lord and Savior ministered. He didn't have some great hoard of cash out of which he was self-supporting. He didn't do work with his own hands during his ministry. 
We're told in Luke chapter 8 that he and the disciples were all financially supported by the generous gifts of people who came alongside of them. This is the way our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ ministered while he was on the earth. This is the way he instructed his apostles to minister. And this is what Paul's appealing to. This is what God commanded. Now, obviously, all of this comes with great application to people like me and people who serve full-time in ministry. It comes as application to a church that's questioning whether or not they should pay their pastors, how they should pay their pastors. But even for you, because the main point here is really not even the payment. This is almost what Paul's saying as the backstory, the justification of the right so that he could tell you how he laid it aside. That's really the challenge for you. The challenge is a man who, when he felt like the gospel was threatened, was willing to lay aside anything. He was willing to lay aside any freedom, any benefit, any kind of compensation. The real challenge is for you, whether or not you, for the sake of a raise, for the sake of a promotion, for the sake of a relationship and a network, whether or not you would withhold and draw back from the proclamation of the truth, the preaching of the gospel of repentance and faith, whether or not you would lay aside any freedom, whether or not we, myself included, would ever put anything before the preaching of God's word. We're accountable to God. We answer to Him, whether we're preachers or pastors or Sunday school teachers or just people out in the community. We answer to Him. And it's ultimately Him to whom we look for our support, for our financial well-being. It's ultimately Him who provides us with our living, with our jobs, with our raises, with our advancement. Our job is to be faithful, proclaimers, always of the truth, for the sake of His glory. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Would you bow together with me? Father, we're grateful for the example of this great man, this apostle, this servant, this one who so led the way for us. Lord, we're mindful that there are so many false motivations that tempt us each day to draw back from the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't abide by that, that we would always operate with this sense that we are, we are accountable to you, that we are supported by you. It is you who guides our steps. It is you who blesses our way, it is you who meets our needs. Lord, I pray that we would never put anything in front of the responsibility that we have, the calling that we may may have, the mandate that we have to preach the gospel, to proclaim to the lost their need to repent and believe in you. Help us, Lord, to always trust you Help us to always look to you, not only for our needs, but to guide our steps in all of these conversations. We pray in Christ's name.
Amen.